This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Yes, the city of Vancouver made a big move on the downtown east side encampment on Wednesday. We're going to unpack that starting right now. The hows and the whys. And it all begins, indeed, with uh, somebody who has decided to make a big move, and that is the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim. Large entrenched encampments like the one uh, that we have on East Hastings is not a viable model going forward. And the, the, the longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives. All right, so everybody agrees that what's happening on the downtown east side is untenable, okay? Right? We can agree to that. There are a lot of pieces of this puzzle, though, and it's got a lot of people quite upset. But at the root, at the base of this, the risks along Hastings streets, while varied, have been mostly a concern for Fire Chief Karen Fry. It was almost a year ago that she said it had to be cleared for safety reasons. Uh, many, many fires later, here is Chief Fry this week. The specific risks include blocked exits, obstructed fire department connections, which is how we get water into the buildings, combustibles accumulating against the buildings, unsafe use of propane and storage of flammable liquids, open flames, and there were continued amount of outdoor fires in the area. And of course, the Vancouver Police Department, the VPD, playing a big role in keeping streets safe, trying to at least the encampment, making their job definitely more difficult. Street-level assaults within the encampment have increased 27%, and nearly half of those are now being committed by strangers. More than two times a day, a person is being assaulted in the encampment, and approximately one-third of the assaults are serious assaults or involve a weapon. Chief Adam Palmer there. The other side of the want-to-decamp-hasting street are the people with nowhere to go. City Manager Paul Mokri isn't convinced the sweep will help at the end of the day. Most of the people in Vancouver who are unsheltered are not on Hastings Street. They're in other parts of the city. That's not going to change with today. What we're seeing here is a situation where this encampment in its current form is clearly unsafe. That's what we have to deal with today. It's not going to solve the issue of homelessness. And we've heard from residents of the downtown east side, people who live in rental apartments or own a space there. One woman in particular stands out as she was saying, you know what, it's unsafe for me. Twice a day I'm harassed or worse walking through these tents on the way to the space that is my home. And then there is also the unhoused person like Krusty Poirier. The, the plan here is cyclical for them. Where are you going to go? Uh, probably out back. I wait a day or two and I'll come right back. That's what we did last time. I've been, I've been here for almost two years straight. As you heard, likely on the Simi Sarah show, is the plan for the city to continue to go down there and, con- and, and ensure that the tents do not pop back up, that an encampment does not uh, reemerge on the downtown east side. But as our next guest, you know him, you love him, you hear him on CKNW. He's a political analyst. He's a former city councillor. He's my co-host of Unspun Podcast. And George Affleck, we're going to do a little Unspun Live here as we're going to talk through how we have been discussing for five years, 10 years and beyond uh, mm-hmm. the issues that we're seeing downtown east side right now and trying to make change down there. Thanks for doing this on your holiday. No problem. My pleasure. Yeah, this is a, a sea change in, in the government uh, and how we manage our city, I think. This is not just a one-off kind of move. This decision by the mayor, the police force, the fire department uh, is a new strategy that uh, is really a step to the strategies of the way we used to do it, pre-Vision Vancouver, 
where there used to be an ongoing campaign to not let people sleep on our sidewalks, that there were there was constant uh, you know, the tenaciousness to dealing with it through staff and in a kind way, mostly. Uh, but yeah. over the last 10, 15 years, uh, that that policy kind of changed and staff were told to leave uh, these people alone and let them camp wherever in parks, on streets. And, and, and we are where we are now. And as a result, uh, we have a new council, a majority by ABC, and they've made the decision clearly, uh, which you know would be considered by, brave by some because they're going to take a lot of heat for this. Uh, to decamp uh, Hastings Street, and I would think uh, any other place where we start seeing these things pop up. So talk us through, George, is how you saw this unfold. It was a leak at first saying uh, this yeah. was going to happen. Talk, to explain that from, from your perspective. How does a leak happen in City Hall like this? Oh, yeah. Well, somebody who had access to internal documents uh, got them out there to the public uh, through various sources. Who knows? Who knows? I think we. I think the staff at City Hall probably know, but uh, yeah. uh, I don't think we'll ever find out. But it, it ramped up the speed at which we have. They had to deal with it. Uh, right. It said, "Okay, I guess we got to get go time." Um, and uh, so we saw this uh, this move on the, this week as a result of that leak. So it, then it went. It went from leak to uh, we are in full effect. It's happening. Mm-hmm. And then first thing Wednesday morning, a lineup of VPD officers and and you know flanked by uh, bylaw officers, city staff workers who then were literally tossing um, immediately into big garbage trucks, uh, tents mm-hmm. and furniture and belongings. The belongings that the people and but it was eighty tents that were very entrenched. Right, the people that were mm-hmm. removed on Wednesday, George. These are not people who were open to the idea of moving elsewhere. No, from what I hear from my sources, uh, yeah, and 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 we've talked about this before in the show and on our show. Uh, there's been a a really um, slow process. They started prior to the election campaign back in August, I think, in helping people find homes that were down there that were willing. Uh, when they had things that they wanted to keep, they they cataloged it and stored it for them if they wanted to. They had buckets and stuff like that. So they did this for since August until this week. And finally, to the people that were left there, they said, look, you know, it's time is, time is up. We've given you every opportunity and, and tried to help you. You're not moving. This is not safe, and and we need to do this. As you heard from Paul Mokri and the basic theme from all the speakers that you just played, yeah. the theme was about safety, and yeah. not about homelessness or housing or all the other things that are you know red herrings when it comes to a lot of what's going on, which is, is about safety. Fires uh, were happening regularly. You heard from the police that there were assaults happening every day. This is every not day. a livable city. This is not a civil society that uh, we require our government to uphold. Um, and that is the decision by this government to move forward and, and do what they did. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, along with George Affleck, political analyst, former Vancouver City Councillor, my co-host at Unspun Podcast, as well as a fill-in uh, host here on CKNW. And George, before the break, we were talking about the downtown east side sweep, uh, the decampment of the tent city that has been ever growing and ever more dangerous, a fire risk, a, a crime and and um, serious uh, safety risk to the public, to people who live and love the city of Vancouver, the downtown east side included residents of the downtown east side who actually rent spaces or own spaces down there or businesses down there. Um, but more and more, George, the people living in those tents have been referring to themselves as residents or have mm. been referred to by members of the media or the public as residents of the downtown east side. Mm. Your thoughts on that? Well, I worry that it's normalizing uh, the, the, this kind of living arrangement, which is not normal at all, to, to, to basically squat on the streets, the sidewalks, or to take over parks in, in these tents. Uh, it normalizes the language, uh, and I worry that this then normalizes this, this kind of behavior. Or this, it, These people are, are, are homeless, uh, apparently, I would su- assume, unless they, don't, unless, unless they want this to be their home. So I'm worried that, that it's, the language is making this you know, normal, and it shouldn't be considered normal by any government or any organization. This is, this is terrible that these people have to live in this situation, and we need to fix it, and we need to find homes for, these, for everyone who's in these situations who are basically homeless living on our streets. Right. So you and I have spoken on our podcast, I keep mentioning Unspun Podcast, because we literally have talked about this issue, because we're going into year five mm-hmm. of our podcast, and, and we've almost talked about it every week, because it's, it's like whack-a-mole of camps, right? Where are mm-hmm. these people supposed to go? When you, when you 
send everybody, you know what? Too bad. We're taking, we're taking your stuff. Cause while there are people that are like, clean up this city. And then there's the other side of it going, what are you doing? These are human beings. Is there middle ground mm-hmm. to be found here? And what does that look like? Well, I know we have this challenge, the homeless challenge across the Canada, across America, across so many uh, countries uh, that yeah. homelessness has become a big issue. And it really started 30 years ago. And we've talked about this a lot. There were decisions made in Canada specifically related to funding social housing and how it worked. As a result, over the last 30 years, we've had about 45, 50,000 units not built. And how many homeless people are in Canada? About 45, 50,000 people. Mm. So I'm not saying there's a direct relationship, but uh, yeah. there's absolutely been no real good solid program across Canada where we as a nation share this cost, this problem, uh, and find ways to build homes for, for the, the people that are living on the streets. And, and it, this doesn't happen. Of course, there's the mental health care is, the problems as well, the drug addiction. There's a, this whole package of things that are really causing this problem. And, and I don't feel... Given what we went through with the pandemic, we showed uh, internationally that we could solve a problem quickly. Um, Why are we not doing the same for drug addiction and homelessness uh, and housing? I I don't understand. And generational trauma. Right. We we have to speak to to how we have failed on so many levels here. And. For years, we talked about the downtown east side being a a, just a, a money pit. Uh, you know, $365 million. We used to say that all the time because it was a million dollars a day. It's way more mm-hmm. than that now. We're over a billion dollars a year to sustain this. Where might that money be better spent? I want to hit the phones uh, yeah. just real quick. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Al in Aldergrove. Al uh, has a comment that he wants to uh, bring to the party here. Al, your thoughts on what we're talking about. Welcome to the show. Well, it is. Cra- good, yeah, good morning, Jody and uh, George. Um, uh, Nanaimo, I think they have two lots there. They took and they fenced it with, with, with about a seven or eight foot fence. They have a security guard at the door, and all the people live in there now. Mm. And I don't know why they, you know, the government, they, doesn't the army have great big tents? Couldn't they take and get a couple lots somewhere? Take a, a big tent like that, put it up. They can have their little tents inside the big tent. And they can have their little community in there, and they look after it in there, and and you have some security guards, so you don't let the, you know, um, this, the the crime element happen. come in. Yeah, it, thanks, exactly. Al. You know what? You're you're bringing a great point to the party here, Al. As I say, you know, George, uh-huh. this is something you and I have discussed with just uh, a minute yeah, to go I, here. But is that ghettoizing though, or is that yeah, putting that, people? There's, in- a, there's a big pushback from that idea within the people who support and, and help the homeless, they think that that is uh, almost a, a jailing kind of situation where you're putting them in a, in a sort of institutionally controlled area. This is not, uh, it doesn't fly, I don't think, with the, with the community. And it's, uh, it's something that I don't even think the majority of people would want to see either. We want to build proper homes, houses, units for these. I think the, the temporary modular housing program is a very good one. Uh, yeah. And that needs to be expanded outside of Vancouver, across the region in a bigger way. Everybody needs to step up. Vancouver has been stepping up for years now on this on this file. It's time for other cities who have not been stepping up across this region, across this province, and across this country. You look at any, you know, this whole NIMBY thing about, you know, it's got to stop. We've got to allow there to be uh, we need true to social housing built yeah. quickly. Yes, everywhere. George Affleck, mm-hmm. as always, thank you for making time for me when I fill in here on CKNW. I appreciate you on this good Friday. Have a happy Easter weekend. All right. Thanks, that Jody. is George George Affleck. So what would you do if you were harassed online? Perhaps you've been harassed online. Have you been in those crosshairs? I'm not talking trolls and bots so much because it's a sad fact that many of us have suffered online harassment every day. It seems there's another story of targeted online vitriol. Social media, as I say, trolls and bots, they played a big role in normalizing nasty, right? Normalizing the coming at you vibe, the harassment. It's not normal and it's not okay. And at some point, our justice system needs to modernize to help people who find themselves in the crosshairs of hate. So many people saying, I don't know what to do. I report it, and there's really nothing that anybody can do. Well, 
has that changed? Is it evolving? Do you know what to do if you are targeted? How do you gather the evidence that you need in order to take next steps to try and put a halt to harassment? What not to do is probably a very big piece of this as well. Our next guest is an expert in this lane, navigating digital citizenship. There's an ever-growing need for digital security, and Jesse Miller is the founder of Mediated Reality. You've heard him here on the airwaves of CKNW before. He is here to help. Jesse, thanks for doing this on your holiday. Appreciate it. Good morning, Jody. So, I mean, it's not for most people might have heard. I mean, it's been a pretty loud thing the last few weeks that that, that I have um, been through the the harassment, the targeted harassment um, that so many women in journalism have have experienced. And and people like, I mean, I, I interviewed Dr. Bonnie Henry. Let's start there. Our provincial health officer. I sat down with Dr. Henry and I asked her, when did it start? Like, when did you get your first death threat in your email inbox? And she said, the very first public health briefing of 2020. Like, this is unbelievable, right? And then what do you do? What do you do when you get that kind of, you know, not just I don't like who you are or what you said, but but a more targeted, hateful message? Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of comes to the idea of how our society interacts with one another. And now, obviously, with the Internet, we can directly contact people based on emails and social media accounts. But I think if we expand it and we look at some of the themes, I mean, in the United States, 41% of Americans identify that they've navigated some form of online harassment based on 2021 numbers. And if you look at I mean, but the thing is, how do you measure the theme? Is it the idea of an intimate relationship that's gone in a different direction? Is it just the idea you've been playing a video game and somebody has chosen to target you because they didn't like that you beat them in a video game? There's so many themes within this that go to the idea of power. And what's interesting to me, especially in Canada, in our, in our sports world, and I think you're obviously more than familiar with reporting on sports stories, but now with the athlete themselves being able to receive direct contact, right? Mm-hmm. It used to be the, the fan at the boards who's screaming through the glass, or they would hang out in the exit ramp to scream at the opposing players. Now they right. can literally slide into the messages of, of the player, but also their partners and their families. And yeah. so it is the extremism that gets that question. So the extreme targeting, the extreme communication, those are the things that we really need to now dial into. Because, yeah, I think we should all have a little bit of tough skin when it comes to the Internet. You know, you don't want to be talking to somebody. We can block. We can choose to sure. delete. But we sure. also have to understand that we're now in a very big pool of people who all have opinions and literally are going to type them out as quick as they can feel them as opposed to as they can process them. Right. So just let's start with the blocking and deleting and, the, and, and what have you. Like w- there's certainly a room for being like, okay, that, that's just a bot or a troll or what have you. David Moskrop, a uh, political scientist and, and, and columnist for the, the uh, Washington Post, he, he's, he's an, just an excellent mind in Canada. He wrote a substack last week. It was like block and mute often. In fact, he is now blocking for anybody he thinks might, might, piss him off in the future is I think how he wrote it. Um, Proactive blocking. (laughs) Proactive blocking, which you know what? Makes a lot of sense. Unless you find yourself in a situation where that person that you're blocking is coming at you by creating new profiles or new email addresses or new, you know, there's, where is that line when it goes from being like, okay, this, this just comes with social media. And if you don't like it, get off of it. Or it becomes, you know, what, where is the line on harassment? Is it how you feel? Because that's what the Me Too movement was really about. Like, where is that line? Well, the line is if you are in a work environment and your superior in somebody who controls your livelihood uh, comes at you in a certain way, there's the line. Like, is there a line in online harassment? There, there can be. I, I think I love that we have to combine our professional and, and some of our, our open, very public communications in this space, because in the workplace, if you have to sit at the table and work with somebody, it's part of your job. But maybe you eventually get to that point where their interactions with you, you have to bring in a third party and say, listen, as much as I understand, I have to work with this individual. This is where these are causing problems for me. And when yeah. we look at people like Mosscroft, you know, he puts out a tweet and there's going to be people who I subscribe to him. I pay attention to him. I value his opinion. And yeah. if we were to sit down and have a beer, we'd be able to do that and be just fine. 
but somebody else who doesn't like what he has to say. They don't appreciate his viewpoint. They're going to come at that with a lot of ire. So when he highlights this proactive blocking, it's saying, you know what, I know this person. doesn't matter if they're going to even have a glimmer of appreciating what I have to say here. They're most likely going to align with their idea that they have to target me. And so I'm just going to say, you don't get to pay attention to what I have to say. And that's right. the choice that we get to make on social media, right? Like that's the joy of the block and delete. Um, proactively here, I think a lot of people are struggling with the idea of how we give ourselves to the internet. And there is a brand new generation of internet users who are very comfortable saying things in public spaces. They don't care if people know things about them. And unfortunately, what happens is when it gets to that extremism piece again, it's the, oh, now the person can put together lots of little puzzle pieces to get a full picture of who I am, where I spend time, where I work, what do I do with my free time. And that's where when that, that scary feeling comes in, you have to ask yourself, who's going to protect or who's going to help protect me? But also, what can I do to contract some of this information? And the hard part here is once it's on the Internet, it's almost impossible to contract back. Right. And there can be that swarming mentality depending on where you find yourself uh, in that um, kick the bee's nest kind of position, you know, depending on the subject matter with which you're being um, schooled by somebody who disagrees with you in their in their mind they're going to teach you how wrong you are um about something but it can also you know spark next level like what are some of the big mistakes jesse we're with jesse miller founder of mediated reality we talk security digital citizenship um one of the thoughts about this particular discussion because we could talk for hours with jesse um one of the things that i think is really important here is how does our listener manage that? Like, what are some of the basics of protecting yourself from putting out on social media or anywhere online, those things that you can never claw back, like where you live, what your car looks like, what your license plate is, where you spend your time, the immediate, like the check-in in in real time and, and even having location services on, um, on your, on your posts on social media. I mean, I've, worry all the time about my 15 year old having Snapchat and, and, and being like, oh, I'm just checking in to see where all my friends are. I'm like, Oh my good God, that's terrifying. When we talk about that new generation. A lot of young people are actually very comfortable sharing their location with their friends, which actually is kind of beneficial in the sense that, no, I mean, there's, there's a weird anxiety we have about the idea of them bojacking each other. But when we think about the idea of missing kids, you know, you're like, Oh, go talk to their friends. See if they knew where they were last. This is a whole new level now for some of those threats to safety that are very legitimate. And you can have a kid go, no, no, I I actually tracked my friend. We, we did this as a, as a partnership and I can tell you where their phone was last. Like that right there is a a huge advantage for, you know, missing child situation. But when it comes to the idea, of minimizing information like yeah we all post photos online of our, our, our lives where we are birthday parties you want to take a picture of your new car you got great but just censor the license plate and it's not the mm-hmm. idea that anybody can run your license plate in british columbia and find out where you live no. it's the idea that now they understand where you park and they can verify that that car in the photograph is matched to that plate so now they know that's yours right. the thing is is that minimizing things like our kids i do a lot of advocacy for digital consent do you have consent from everybody involved in the photograph to be shared to be shared on the social media platform whether it be private or public ask questions like hey i'm about to post this video you're in it do you feel comfortable if i share this are you comfortable with followers that i have who you don't know seeing it and the more that we open up the conversation about how people feel in these very public spaces that are sometimes deemed to be private because it's our private lives being shared online Mm -hmm. then we can talk to people and about our expectations Expectations. And if my expectation is, hey, I want to hang out with you, but I don't want to be in every Instagram photo because I don't want the world to know who I am, where I am, or what I'm doing, then yeah. that's a fair thing to do in that friendship. And if the friend isn't willing to do that because they're more inclined to share online because they're looking for that affirmation rush, then maybe we don't pose for photos with them. So we're with Jesse Miller, the founder of Mediated Reality. We're talking digital citizenship, online harassment, how to navigate your way through what is an ever-escalating temperature when it comes to interacting online. We're talking about, you know, blocking, muting, deleting, just removing yourself from a stressful situation. Or if it's escalating and you can't avoid it, what your next steps might be. And Jesse, I opened up the phone lines uh, for those who might want to check in on this subject. And certainly people do. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is the number to call on your cell phone, free call on your cell. Just hit star 9898. Uh, Terry in New Westminster is up first. Terry, welcome to the show. Yeah, um, happy uh, Good Friday and happy Easter Monday. I really, really respect what you did, Miss Vance. I think your courage is really uh, incredible. 
Good for you. Um, you know, freedom of speech is fine, but when you threaten people and harass them, which is what it is, it goes beyond uh, freedom of speech, and it's a form of criminal activity. I've been harassed growing up. I'm not a big guy. I wear glasses and I'm short. Um, in my past, I've been called a faggot, walking down the street by somebody six foot three who wanted to beat me up. Um, I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan. Two drunken fans leaving a Giants hockey game tried to beat me up because they thought I was French-Canadian, which I'm not. It's none of their business anyway. So they're screaming at me about going back to Quebec. We're going to beat you up, you know, take that jacket off, frog, and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm. So freedom of speech is fine, but you know what? There has to be civil discourse between people. It's really gone downhill in the last 25 years. I'm part American, so I've seen what goes on south of the border right. with people, and people need to really um, pull back and be civilized and chill out a bit when they treat other people the way that they do. It's totally not acceptable, and people need to be a lot more civilized and a lot more compassionate. Thank you for your phone call, Terry. I'm so sorry that you've been targeted in that way. Jesse, this is, you know, it moves into real life as well as online. And is there the consequences for those who would do such things are almost non-existent, it feels. Well, and, and to Terry's point, obviously, certain words land differently for others. And, and we, we struggle to abolish certain words from our everyday lexicon. But yeah. um, when people are openly in the streets are willing to say things, then it's almost as if I actually I value it a bit more uh, because we can put a face to the circumstance. We can put a witness to mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's again, it's, it's our everyday discourse that it reflects, and to Terry's point, what our society should look like in the sense of, being cordial to one another. But again, you know, you can throw in all sorts of variables, alcohol and going to a hockey game, whatever it be. But our society does value that conflict. And it's something that we, we sell at a tabloids in the sense of highlighting issues in, pop, in, in, in Hollywood or in paparazzi targeting individuals. But if right. you go to the internet and we just think about the comment section, you know, if I go to a teenager's, you know, Instagram post and, you know, they've got a meme up, there's going to be a, a dozen friends who are posting words that, yes, we would encourage them not to use those words, we would show them how those negatively affect people. They will wear pink T-shirts and they'll raise awareness and they'll turn around and say it's a joke. That exists in every workplace. That works. It exists in places where people push the boundaries and all of a sudden you're sitting with HR because the word that you thought would be okay to use as a joke now is negatively affecting somebody. Right. It's a slur. Yeah. It's a slur. And so to those points of the internet, yes, there is vitriol that goes with the idea of being online. The question becomes, is it when it's, when it's constant and it becomes targeted, that's where we really need to really change how people feel that they can be emboldened to just target people online. We're never going to get rid of the trolls. The trolls are always going to exist. They're always going to anonymize things. But one of the most important pieces here we can do is really understand the accountability piece. And if we have rules in place to make sure that when people want to make comments, they have to be who they are, that will bring a lot of this down drastically. So, Jesse, with just two minutes here, um, time is short, but boy, we need this advice from you. What should people do if they find themselves in what you just explained, that next level? What should they be doing? Are they screen capping? Are they printing off? Are they calling the non-emergency line? How do you, how do you propose to identify somebody who may be hiding behind a keyboard? Well, first and foremost, for parents listening, in British Columbia, we have what's called a race. And if you just go to a race BC on Google, you'll find there's a portal for British Columbia kids, K through 12, who can report things directly to their school. And the BC School Act actually allows a lot of flexibility in how a school principal investigates things, actually more, more flexibility than maybe a police officer has, because they get to use the School Act as part of the reason why they're investigating somebody. Ooh, that's um, but for very good. And it's a great, it's a great portal. It has a lot of resources. And so for listeners who are interested, even if you want to see how, you know, we take this as an approach in the Ministry of Education, that's a really good uh, vantage point. But for the everyday user, yeah, screenshotting is wonderful. Don't bring the fight to the public's, you know, circle. Don't bring it into the Facebook comments. Uh, The more that you try and kind of put the person on blast, the more it can actually negatively impact you, especially if it's not necessarily your feelings that are um, being supported by people, but also their want to get retribution. So that, that can be a really big stirring of the pot. Um, but the more that you collect, the more that you feel that you can bring it to your employer. If it's coming through your employer email, that's a great way as well. But um, non-emergency is your best bet when it comes to just having a police report, if that's what you're looking to do. Um, but any threats to immediate safety where you're feeling like you can't walk from your office to your car or vice versa from home, um, 911, that's, that's, that's why 911 services are there. 
There you go. Jesse Miller, Mediated Reality. You can find Jesse on your social media. Great follow is Mediated Reality on Twitter. Thanks for your time as always, my friend. I appreciate you. Thanks, Jody. Want to be on top of a big story uh, that we're, you know, does impact so many of us, the gut punch of inflation. I mean, that's hitting us all. But it is safe to say that the pain is definitely being felt most by those living paycheck to paycheck, making minimum wage. And the news that BC's lowest paid workers with will get a pay raise with the general minimum wage increasing from $15.65 to $16.75 an hour as of June 1st, well, that, that'll help, at least says BC Minister of Labour. Have a listen. This will go a long ways in attracting and retaining workers. The minimum wage workers have a least latitude to, uh, to uh, afford uh, to continue to fall behind. Right, but how does it land with small business owners? Annie Dormuth from CFIB has this to say. This comes at a very, very difficult time for business owners, much like all people right now. And that's that's really going to be the impact is is this is yet another cost increase on top of many cost increases that the government keeps putting on the backs of small businesses. So tough. And our Global Ledge reporter, Richard Zussman, you know him, you love him. He checked in with the owner of Jones Barbecue, Joshua, Joshua Goyard. Uh, he says it's not easy. The margins are so small that you really can't continue to pass that buck on to the customers. And an extra serving is on the way. The provincial government is expected to announce the minimum wage is going up again on June 1st. It's good. Uh, People need a living wage, but it makes it hard to do business. Okay, so let's have a conversation about just how difficult it is to do business in the restaurant industry given all that has happened. The margins prior to the pandemic were tight. Ian Tostenson, the champion of the restaurant industry, helping you know tie together the threads throughout COVID-19 and now into this inflated time of, of stress, economic stress. The president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association joins me on the line. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Jody. Happy Good Friday. Happy Good Friday to you, my friend. Let's do talk about how an increased minimum wage might impact our restaurant industry in BC. I think the easiest way to to demonstrate this is by looking at a a theoretical restaurant that's doing a million dollars a year, which is not a very big restaurant, but you'd be surprised at a lot of small restaurants that do that, you know, coffee shops. And so, you know, the, the typical financial model would say that 30% of their cost is labor. So that's $300,000. So when you increase the minimum wage by close to 7%, that's an incremental $21,000 just on labor alone that is now an added cost. So the question becomes, and, and those numbers are very true. So the question becomes, what does a business owner do? Do they increase revenues? Do you want to pay $30 for a hamburger? you know, do you decrease expenses? And then where can you decrease expenses? And, you know, what they saw, uh, interestingly, um, Jody, in a study in Alberta, is that raising the minimum wage too quickly can actually have a a negative employment effect. So if if you sort of accept the fact that most of our workers um, that are not tipped employees are not making minimum wage, then um, the ones that are going to get the raise most in our industry are going to be the ones that are already earning tips. And, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of the tipped workers work for tips and not so much the wages. So it's a, it's a, it, our, our model is a bit awkward. And the other effect that we have um, is that it's just not the bottom that comes up. I, I disagree with the, with the minister when he says this will attract people. We, we have a demographic problem. So there's no, generally there's no, there's not enough people in British Columbia for most industries, but um you'll see that if Jody, if I'm making, say, minimal wage and it goes up 7% and Jody's making $18.50 or maybe $19, you're going to want the same distance between those wage brackets. And so you get mm-hmm. an absolute inflation. So you're not just dealing with the bottom, which is important. Um, you're dealing with everybody. So it's, it's, it's a real tough one. It's another cost on top of cost. We um, met with the minister on several occasions and laid out a case that we felt that because um, we sort of heard they're going to do, you know, something over 6%, that 3% uh, 
would be a fair well, because inflation is not 6.9 percent it's less than six and we're building this cost structure in forever and at three percent it may allow the employer to start doing some other things besides just wages so benefits or you know changing the, the work-life balance equation maybe just keep rising the cost like they are it makes it very difficult for the employer to, right so to build cre- any, more creative in your things. More creative in your way of of lessening the burden on, as you say, the the lowest paid employee. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, and I, I hate to sort of hear us. Com- we're not complaining here, but you know, at the end of, at the end of all this, our responsibility is to provide you know good employment, but to give you our guest an experience. And there was an example of a restaurant in Victoria recently. They published. This is my $21 hamburger. I make about, I think it was 50 cents. And here's all my costs that go into that. So we don't want to scare away our guests um, because, as I said to the minister actually a couple of days ago, let's not just assume restaurants are just because we can all go out and just, it's it's discretionary. A lot of restaurants are necessary for people and they're they're part of the daily routine. And and they, I think he understands that, but at the same time, he's the Minister of Labour and he wanted to do what he did and he did what he did. And I think it was a bit aggressive. And Ian, just before the break, you were referencing, you know, food costing and how people are saying, why this is an $18, $21 hamburger. How is it? And I make 50 cents off this hamburger once you factor in all of the pieces of the puzzle. And I think that's a really important part of this when people think that maybe you're crying foul on behalf of the restaurant industry when people are like you yeah. have to pay your employees but there there's more to this it's more it's a domino effect right it is and you know and I, in our model is a little different you so that you know the minimum wage employee um so we did we were in victoria about six weeks ago we did a bit of a scan on about six or seven restaurants and and this is awesome i mean the the average server in a busy restaurant is making 85 to 90 thousand dollars a year when they account for their tips right and so their wages in and some employers will say they don't even cash their paychecks they don't care they want their tips so it is very driven but the the hundred and fifty eight thousand people that are making minimum wage we asked the minister you know there's probably a lot of people in our industry that are making minimum wage mm-hmm. but they're tipped employees and so it's a it's a bit of a you know it doesn't quite tell the right story now you've got quick service restaurants we're minimum wage. You know, a lot of that, a lot of those people are, you know, living at home in their first-time jobs, and no one ever said you, sh- you should be able to buy a house at, uh, at your first job at McDonald's. Yeah. So we have to be really careful here because, well, we're going to come out of this, and inflation will settle, but we don't want to establish a cost structure that's so high that it's, it's unsustainable. Untenable. But at yeah. the but at the same time, employees are our biggest asset. And, and and so I will not argue we shouldn't be doing this. We did say, as I said, let's give them 3% and then work some other things. I would like to see our industry become much more career oriented. And it's going to be more than just putting dollars on the table. It's mm-hmm. going to be work-life balance and, and medical benefits and those types of things to attract people and to keep them. I like that idea as well. Let's go to the phone line. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. Bob, or Rob, excuse me, Rob yeah, in okay. Chilliwack. You're up first. I bet that yeah, happens yeah. to you all the time. Hey, I apologize. Hey, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Bob, Rob, it's all good. Um, so the question I have is, so yeah, I want to ask Ian, so does with this increase, so a server, will they make the new minimum wage? Or then I have something else I want yeah. to ask them. So they that's make the minimum question. wage. Yeah, it's a good question, Rob. The um, they do that the, they will make the the new uh, in uh, minimum wage. Used to be so, liquor servers had a different wage, and okay. it was a slightly okay. lower, but it not anymore. Wow. So if I may say, Jody, just quickly, so you figure that new wage? I think it works out to one hundred and thirty-four dollars a day. And am I correct? Did you just say they're making about how many thousands in tips? Did you say some a good of them? Server. Yeah, a good server will make an annual uh, annual income of you know uh, well let's put it on an hourly basis, uh, thirty eight to fifty dollars an hour on average. Holy so, shit! I mean, I work yeah. for the federal government. I, I'm only I'm only uh, uh, grossing sixty some uh, thousand a year, sixty two I think it is now. Yeah. That's after all. That's, this is my thirty fifth year. So my feeling is Ian is that they're kind of the government has kind of shot themselves in the foot with this industry because I really feel. When there's no le- entry level jobs anymore, and that's part of the problem is this has become a careers, and it's almost like people are they become literally dependent on 
tips. I mean, it just, yeah, it doesn't seem right. And I feel I, it's not going the right way. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks, Rob. Good observation, Mr. Rob. Yeah, we should preface or put into context that that sampling of what uh, a server might make at that level that you describe is not the the norm, the 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 all levels. Like if you're working at the mom and pop shop down at the end of the street, you're probably not making ninety k a year with your tips. No. But there are great established restaurants where you can make it as a career. And and we all can imagine that restaurant in our mind, not the highest end that, that are unaffordable to most to even attend, but sort of that, that what do they call it? The, the higher, um, like not fine dining, the one down from fine dining. I'm drawing a blank yeah, on it. Yeah, sort of casual, you know I mean? upscale casual. Ca- yeah, upscale totally. casual. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you can make you can make a nice, comfortable salary. But what you reference, Ian, about having medical and having making make it more of a career, because if you're a server and I spent a lot of time in my life being I I was a waitress back then, it was called. And I also worked in kitchens and I would make my my livelihood by way of gratuities, by tips. And but if I hurt myself, if I twisted my ankle, you know, out on uh, running trying to stay fit for my job and I twist my ankle and I can't work. I don't get a sick day. I don't get paid my tips on the day that I don't work. So that's part of the equation that comes in is I I think that speaks to your want for the modernization of, of the service industry to, to have some of those supports um, in, in place. If we can, I want to squeeze in Randy and Coquitlam. We're very short on time, but Randy, I want, I want to bring your perspective in here. What do you think? Hey Jody, thanks very much for taking my phone call. Sure. Uh, former general manager of many restaurants and bars in Vancouver, uh, bar manager, marketing manager for uh, some top companies. And uh, I just wanted to touch base on some of the server tips and, and such. Went out last night to a local restaurant and uh, had dinner, um, had a couple drinks, and the bill came out to be about 107 No problem with the bill, and I tip quite nice, but I left a $50 bill. Yeah. And the server just kind of just kind of walked away. And... <sighs> I couldn't believe it. So I actually came back and said, is everything okay with the tip? Oh, yeah, it's it's fine. And I was thinking, wow. I do a 50% half. tip. And half of that. Yeah. And I've done tip-outs before. I've been in the office in the morning uh, yeah. going through the service tip-outs and bartenders. They make an absolute fortune. Yeah. Some do. Thank you very much, Randy. You know what? I got a jet here. I'm up against the clock, Ian, but thank you so much for doing this on your Good Friday. Uh, I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks, Jody. Talk to you soon. We are connecting now with Global News Washington correspo- correspondent, excuse me, Reggie Cicchini. He is a good friend of the program. You hear him every Friday on the Simi Sarah Show, Mornings with Simi. Um, we could almost have you on hourly, Reggie, with how much has been happening in the news cycle south of the border, not just in this past week, but ongoing what feels like for years. But this week, certainly, pardon the pun, trumps it all. A, a now indicted former U.S. president. Yeah, I mean, this was a work uh, moment, not only for the former president who has kind of lived in a or behind at least a political shield for the last um, seven or eight years, but it's also a remarkable moment in this country where for the last several centuries, since kind of the oldest democracy on earth started rolling through, presidents were always treated as um, as as kind of a, a higher figure. And this is now kind of a precedent setting moment in that uh, presidents can now be treated like the common person in America and accountability can be chased after. What do you think forced the hand of the justice system here? And in particular, I guess the first of the cases, let's let's lay this out, because people keep speaking about how the Stormy Daniels case, the the Southern District of New York, the the uh, attorney general, there making this the first of the cases to land on former president Donald Trump, but there are many other cases coming down the pipe here and, and the sort of the noise around why this one first, how long it will take all, all of those pieces of the puzzle. Can you just set the judicial table here as to what the former president is actually facing? 
Yeah. And, and I think that, um, it's important to remember here and from every person that I've spoken to both in the legal world and in the political world, nothing in the kind of legal tube that is kind of spitting things out and, and working things through a system here. Nothing was done in coordination with the other or uh, in order to kind of trump one thing over another. This is simply how the cards happen to be falling. And it is right. also worth remembering the situation that's, uh, that, that, that remains underway in the Manhattan courthouse. This is an investigation that has been going on for years. This started under Cy Vance. It was quietly shelved a little bit when the feds picked it up. It was picked up again by Alvin brag. It was stopped. It started again. And then ultimately it was handed to a grand jury. So this is not something that kind of was just, you know, waiting for something else to happen. It just happens to be falling in line. And and also, secondly, the fact that you have a former president that is facing charges. Yes, this was an investigation spearheaded by the attorney, uh, rather the district attorney in Manhattan. It was ultimately an indictment that was voted on by a group of peers of the former president. These were simple, ordinary Americans in New York City who right. voted to move forward with this. So this was the first uh, to go down. Could it be the first of several? Yes, that is a real possibility, because as you mentioned, there is a legal um, world of trouble that the former president is facing in Georgia and due to January 6th and in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. This is now just a precedent-setting moment in that we see that something can happen. So I, I said, Attorney General, thank you, uh, District Attorney. Sorry, my Canadianness coming out there. Uh, Alvin Bragg, uh, obviously resoundingly attacked by Donald Trump in the days and weeks leading up to this uh, pivotal, unprecedented moment that we all witnessed. And then there was discussion as to whether or not the judge presiding over this uh, Stormy Daniels case, this this indictment, um, would maybe put a gag order into effect here to to stop Trump from from using almost mob boss like rhetoric around this case and and what have we seen the gag order did not was not put in place but the judge did kind of say you know what I'm not going to do it right now but is the but. kind of word that we're looking for here now is that yeah you're right there, there was no gag order put in place and it was widely discussed amongst the legal world is this judge going to do this because it's happened before notably in the roger stone case that was a gag order that was put in effect um yeah. but the judge essentially said to not just the former president he said this to both sides during the hearing do not make inflammatory comments that could be uh, seen as threatening against the court or against members of the court or family of members of the court uh, otherwise i may be required to move and that is simply a way to have Donald Trump tread some difficult waters when it comes to speaking. But there's also a second reason here. Donald Trump is a presidential candidate heading into 2024, right. and there is a vested interest in the public having some kind of transparency into the process uh, without, you know, muddying up the, the kind of waters that are already murky between the legal system and the political system. So allowing Trump to talk keeps this a, a an open conversation for a person who's looking to seek the highest office. But at the same time, Donald Trump has strings that are pulling to say, look, you're going too far. You can't say anything else about this or do better and, and change your phrasing. And then Donald Trump said this. I have a Trump hating judge with a Trump hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris and now receives money from the Biden Harris campaign and a lot of it. So that's Donald Trump speaking at the, it was almost like a rally feeling in Mar-a-Lago at the end of a very long day where he was indicted, where he was charged 34 counts, right? 34 counts against him? 34 counts against the former president and and a widely expected speech from from Donald Trump. We knew he was going back to Mar-a-Lago and we knew without a gag order that this was going to become uh, an opportunity for him to talk about this. He is now finding himself in the history books and he knew that there is a base that wants to hear him uh, play the card of political victim, something he chalks himself up to, something the Republican Party chalks him up to. Uh, and again, the comments made towards the judge, his legal team will say he is not inciting violence by this. He's simply stating the facts. Uh, but the issue is, is that this could be something that bothers the judge. This could be mm -hmm. something that the judge may see. Well, the former president was told, please don't do something that's going to put people in the court system under attack. And then he went and did that. 
there are legal people speaking that the former president could find himself under a gag order in the future if that kind of language persists. What shocked me there was the bringing up of the judge's family. Well, and look, this is a judge who uh, has dealt with Donald Trump uh, before. He was heavily uh, involved in the uh, court proceedings that had to do with the charges levied against the Trump organization and the, the, the ultimate decision that sent Alan Weisselberg uh, to jail. So Donald Trump has an understanding of who this judge is. But to then put that judge and that judge's family in the line of, uh, of fire when it comes to his attacks on, on the system, again, it may not help him in the future. He's getting a bit of a, you know, of a gain, at least in the base when it comes to how they perceive him right now. But ultimately, this is a narrative and a situation that he does not have total control over. Uh, and he could be reined in. And that could that could pose problems for him when it comes to him heading back out on the trail. We're with Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Reggie, you're you're deeply connected in D.C., in, in a town that is run on politics. Obviously, we're not hearing Republicans speak out uh, publicly about Donald Trump and this indictment to, to, to a large degree. I mean, other than maybe a couple of the most notables, you know, ranting on Fox News about sending this man money. Um, are there any, is there any rumbling uh, behind the scenes? People, you know, are there, are there any good Republicans left who might stand up and say this is just... This is this is wrong. I don't think at this point you're going to hear that Republicans are Republicans are not focusing on the legal troubles that are in the future for the president or the former president, or at least the potential legal troubles. They are focused on Manhattan and decrying this as uh, as a witch hunt, as political, as part of a political agenda, using this as something to say, look, this simply doesn't matter. Uh, And so Republicans can line up behind him. The issue is going to be if a grand jury comes back with a decision in Georgia or if a grand jury comes back with a decision in the Mar-a-Lago classified document scandal, then Republicans, at least according to some uh, of the uh, uh, political science experts that I've spoken to, then Republicans will have something to have to pay attention to because this could become damaging to the party, which could become damaging to the party's political future. Right. And there are some people on the Democratic side of the aisle who have also said that this is the weakest of all um, indictments that could be put forward some some saying that you know that but no one being above the law is ultimately i mean if you if you get out of the united states and look at the coverage on a global sense it's like okay crime committed held held to account precisely and and as you're right there have been some democrats that say look this is a weak case or this is the weakest case to be focused on it just happened to go first and democrats really are riding that comment of we've been saying this for years no one is uh, above the law and i spoke with a uh, political scientist from brown university just a couple of days before the charges were laid and they had said well this again could be something that the former president rides at least in a short-term gain with his base seeing him as a bit of a political victim she said Democrats need to be smart in ensuring that they do not gloat over this by holding this as a law and order moment. And then whatever happens next with the next legal cases, they can continue to ride a wave of accountability. So Democrats are fearful that, you know, this could make the political agenda conversation continue to spin, but at the same time, use it as the first of a number of, of blocks that they're building on top of each other to say in America, no one will be above the law. We don't want our children gunned down in schools. That's what this was about. And when we had thousands of young people come to the state capitol last week saying, we want to live, do you hear us? Will you do something? And my colleagues would not even talk about the issue. The House Speaker cut off any debate on the issue. We couldn't even bring it up. He cut off our microphones if we've talked about gun violence. Um, we went to the well and got in good trouble because we had no other choice or, or alternative. That is the sound of a former state, former state representative justin jones talking about gun violence uh, mike's getting shut down tennessee definitely a subject of conversation in the united states that needs to be discussed globally reggie Cicchini, our global news washington correspondent is with us and reggie what have you seen unfold in tennessee politically 
Well, this is a big deal, uh, and it is getting national attention uh, for what could be the suppression of the opposition voice in state politics when you have a supermajority in a state vote to remove lawmakers who were trying to make a difference, in this case, trying to get the state to do more to protect people from gun violence. Uh, the way that they protested on the floor of the House, Republicans deemed it to be disruptive uh, and, and kind of a lack of decorum, and because of that, voted to remove two of the black members not mm. the third white woman. Uh, and there potentially could be some uh, big political fallout from here, especially in areas like the suburbs or with independent or Republican women who simply want to see their kids safe when it goes to school. This could be an issue for Republicans in Tennessee. Is this an example of doing something out loud in plain sight that might have been um, intolerance and racism behind the scenes? Like, are we just seeing... Well, you just laid out the three of them were accused of doing the same thing, and yet only the black Americans were ousted. The, the, this this is the part of the conversation. This is the conversation that these two ousted uh, state level lawmakers are are trying to expose to say that this right. goes just beyond how Republicans saw our actions. But this also speaks to a broader issue going on around the United States of these what, what at least politically uh, what Democrats are decrying are these GOP super majorities that have the ability to remove democratically elected members of a state Congress. It's the same situation in Wisconsin where you have the GOP threatening because they have a supermajority to remove a newly elected liberal judge to the Supreme Court because it would tilt the power, the balance of power to right. a potential left-leaning side. Okay, so that perfectly sets me up for Wisconsin because the balance of power has tipped to the left there judicially. Yeah, absolutely. And and this was a big election that, number one, shows uh, that or at least has has allowed the, the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party to be galvanized and seeing that a uh, progressive could win on a Supreme Court. But when you have a supermajority Republican Party that wants to use, uh, you know, the Supreme Court potentially to their political advantage, uh, mm -hmm. they may seek to to impeach this person, but also even more broad than this, it speaks to the fact that issues like abortion are still driving out voters. They are still making an impact in suburbs that at one point were red. And because of that, this becomes a threat to the GOP. So this is a moment to now watch in the next election. How do these Republicans in states like Wisconsin or in Chicago or around the country now grapple with the fact that there is still momentum building behind the progressives in the Democratic Party? Want to quickly squeeze this in? We'll take you to Chicago. This is Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson's victory speech. With our voices and our votes, we have ushered in a new chapter in the history of our city. A city where you can thrive regardless of who you love or how much money you have in your bank account. This is big. Is this the youth vote getting out? This is the youth vote getting out. This is the progressive side of uh, of a party coming out to vote. And it is, again, uh, a sign politically around the country where a man won an election in a very blue city in a very blue uh, uh, county who had originally talked about wanting to defund police, changed his message to say, look, maybe we just need to fundamentally shift the way that we think about policing in a city where crime uh, is problematic. His victory, the victory of a judge in Wisconsin, again, a moment to galvanize Democrats 18 months before an election and could be something for Republicans to have at the back of their mind. It's unbelievable. We're only 18 months away from another presidential election in the United States. Reggie Cicchini, happy Easter weekend. Thank you for Same doing you. this on your Good Friday. I really appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Happy Good Friday to you. Easter weekend, Passover for those who celebrate. Let's talk about the Easter piece of this and the bunny piece. Bunnies. It, the, the rabbits are not presents at Easter. Seems like a really cute idea, but they are uh, pets. They are members of the family. They're not presents. Pets are not presents. Let me like to go back to that statement regularly when we come to holiday times. And and because it seems like a really good idea because you pick up the bunny and you think, this is so cute. Look at this little baby bunny. It's going to be so great. But that becomes a member of your family. And if you realize that it can't become a member of your family and you think, oh, I'm just going to release it at the park, it'll be great. You have just leaned in on adding to an invasive species problem that is growing quickly in certain areas of 
the city of Vancouver and beyond. But um, if you've ever been down to Jericho Beach and you've seen the feral bunnies running around down there, the population explosion down there and people interacting with them, feeding them, picking them up, thinking they're just so cute, these little bunnies. Okay, we need to talk this through. Eileen Draver is with us, a senior officer of protection and stakeholders relations at the BCSPCA. Eileen, thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. Thanks for the invite. Have I set the table well for you to drive home the importance of bunnies not, rabbits are not presents at Easter. And if you find that you cannot take care of a rabbit where you've made a mistake in in acquiring one and cannot care for it, releasing it into the wild is also not a great idea. No, and and plus it's an offense to do that. And the maximum penalty for abandoning an animal is a $75,000 fine as well as and or two years in prison and or a prohibition from owning animals. So, yes, these are sentient beings and to abandon an animal is just horrible, just absolutely horrible because they're prey animals. And if if they're lucky enough to survive, they can starve and then and then they die. And frankly, suffer. After exactly, and after Easter, we do, our community animal centers do see an increase in the number of uh, bunnies coming into the, the centers. I didn't realize, <laughs> I'll hold my hands up to this, I didn't realize that rabbits can actually live up until they're 15. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking it was like 10, 12, but some More like a guinea pig, actually, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So um so that's a long commitment. That's a, a lifelong commitment. And if you're not prepared to do that, please don't get a bunny. Uh go for a chocolate one or get stuffed ones or yes. but please don't do that. Now if if you, you you've discussed it as a family and you want to take on this responsibility, um then Perhaps at Easter, you, you, you purchase whatever you need for the rabbit and then make that family decision. And the family should go to the adoption center and have a look at the bunnies. But That's do your research idea. first. Yeah, do your do research, research first. And, and it's sim- like you do bring up a really important point, getting the things that you need in order to have a bunny, yeah. to have a rabbit be your pet. It is yeah. involved. And, and their yes. nutrition is important. They don't just live on carrots. It's not a Bugs Bunny situation. It is actually, I mean, you can name it Bugs Bunny because that'd be super cute. But you want to be mindful <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Like, come on. Totally. You got yeah. to take care of it. And I, having spent time down uh, near the Jericho Sailing Center down in Jericho Beach, there is mm-hmm. a population of, of feral rabbits down there. And they're a adorable Eileen they're so cute people are there feeding them the carrots and kids are running around trying to pick up the baby bunnies and don't do that no please don't please don't it's heartbreaking and you know um you you keep your distance just stay away from them and don't encourage them to approach you because not everybody is as nice as we are unfortunately um and people can harm them so keep your distance do not feed them and stay away from them um can i also mention that when when you you are making that decision to purchase a bunny um pet stores usually have this starter kit and it includes a cage and other things these cages are far too small a, a rabbit needs quite quite a large space in fact you can section off part of a room, ensuring that the rabbit can't reach your wires and electrical outlets, et cetera, et cetera. But um, they need quite a large space. So you can either use one of those crates, puppy training crates, um, uh, similar to fencing, and then make sure that it can hop at least three or four times. That's the kind of space that you're looking for. They yeah. need to be stimulated. They're sentient beings and they're very social. They need to be around their people or ideally they would have another rabbit. Um, obviously not the opposite sex because. Right. Good note. In, in, a one, in a one year period. And this is something else I just found out. How, how bad am I after 43 years with the SPCA? But one, in one year, a rabbit can produce 450 babies. One rabbit. What? Can you imagine? I know. <laughs> okay. I thought I'd done my research for this discussion. I did not know that. I mean, I've no. heard the term having babies like bunnies, but I had no idea that one <laughs> rabbit could procreate to that degree. That is something else. 
It, it truly is. So, wow. anyway, you need to make sure you're going to you're going to get your rabbit spayed or neutered, and um, they need brushing regularly. So yeah. they need to go to the spa. So not go to the spa. You can create your own spa where they're getting their nails clipped every four to six weeks. They're being brushed regularly, and their diet. Do your homework. Carrots. That's not the ideal thing to feed your bunny. Um, They need a grass hay, a variety of different grass hays, and then fruits and carrots should be regarded as treats. Um, And also high fiber rabbit pellets. So you can also use them to train train them to uh, use the litter box. Um, And you can clicker train rabbits they're so oh, so smart. I didn't know now, that about the clicker training. I did that with my with my dog. Well, there you go. No, I knew that part. <laughs> well, you're you're very invested in in this, and I think for good reason. And educating people, yeah. and a very big piece of this, a big takeaway is this: they don't live in cages that fit no. on a shelf in your kid's room. They need a pen. They need to hop. They need to be groomed. They need to be loved. They need to be almost walked like a dog. Like, uh, yeah, it, they need the need exercise. They need the exercise. And, and, and they say that actually they need about four hours of exercise per day. Four hours? Of yeah, more than a Well, half, they need to be fit to have all those babies you were talking about <laughs> a year. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, but we don't I mean, want those babies. <laughs> if somebody is like, you know what, we've had the conversation, we're thinking about it. Where do they search? Where does one search for um, the available pets and in particular, maybe rabbits in a care center up for adoption? Where would where would somebody go for more? Information? Well, you can. There are rabbit rescues out there as well as the BCSPCA. So if you go to our website, you'll see the available bunnies for adoption. And again, make sure you do your homework. Gotta do your homework. Eileen Draver, yeah. thank you so much for this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.